Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look at the top stories in the coming week from our Daybreak anchors all around the world. And straight ahead on the program, the Fed decides. Jay Powell and company make a key interest rate decision. I'm Tom Busby in New York. I'm Kaylee Lyons in Washington, where President Biden is preparing to head to New York for the UN General Assembly. I'm Caroline Hepke here in London, where we're looking ahead to the next Bank of England rate decision. I'm Doug Krisner. Inflation in Japan is above target. Now it's up to the Bank of Japan. That's all straight ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend on Bloomberg 1130 New York, Bloomberg 991 Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 1061 Boston, Bloomberg 960 San Francisco, DAB Digital Radio London, Sirius XM 119, and around the world on BloombergRadio.com and via the Bloomberg Business app. Good day to you. I'm Tom Busby, and we begin today's program with the Federal Reserve meeting again this week after nearly two months since the last Fed decision in which Jay Powell and central bank policymakers raised their benchmark lending rate to a 22-year high. So will the Fed hit pause again, or is there another rate hike in the cards? We'll find out Wednesday, and for more, we're joined by Bloomberg International Economics and policy correspondent Michael McKee. Now, before we take a deeper dive into the data the Fed is looking at, what are you expecting to see from the FOMC this week? I think I go with the consensus on Wall Street that the Fed will pause. They gave every indication in their speeches, those who did speak since the last meeting, that they are not in a hurry to raise rates again. Uh, they leave it on the table, but not in a hurry. And so they've created a consensus on Wall Street that they're not going to do anything and they would be loath to surprise investors. Let's talk about rates and where they are right now. We're at a range of five and a quarter to five and a half percent. That's a 22 year high. Right. And how high can they go? Well, they've only said that they would go one more time, uh, and that may change at this meeting. But if they did, they'd go up to uh, a range of five and a half to five and three quarters percent. But of course, if inflation continues to rise and they don't feel like they have uh, tight enough to bring it down, they could go higher than that. Some people were predicting earlier this year that they'd get to six or six and a quarter percent. Uh, Jim Bullard, who uh, just left the Fed after that last. Uh, meaning uh, had predicted in his June dot plot that they'd go to six and a quarter percent. So it's very possible that uh, we haven't seen the end of it. It'll just depend on the progress against inflation. We saw some inflation data this past week, some good, some of it not so good. Let's talk about what happened in August month over month and what was behind that big increase. Well, the big increase came uh, in the uh, CPI headline numbers, and also we saw it in the PPI as well, the producer price index. The oil prices pushed up uh, gasoline prices that pushed up the headline numbers overall. The core went down, though, uh, particularly for the CPI, and that is what the Fed's focused on because they know they can't affect 
the oil price. Uh, they can't. They can raise rates all they want, but they're not going to bring down uh, the price of uh, gasoline by doing that. So they're focused on the core, and the core gave them some evidence that they're still making progress. Slow, but there is still progress. And that core year over year was the biggest decline in two years. So there is progress. There's definitely progress, and now they need to keep that going. The question is, do they need to raise rates further to keep the momentum going, or are they at a tight enough spot now that it already keeps the pressure on? Uh, Let's go to the labor market. Still strong, initial jobless claims edging a little lower, surprising some economists. There's a lot of labor strife, though. Yeah, there is labor strife now with uh, United Auto Workers uh, out on strike, but uh, you won't really notice that too much in the data for a while. The strike began during the reference week for the September payrolls report. So since the workers were at work for most of that week, they won't fall off of the payrolls numbers for September. If they still on strike in October, there's a good chance then we would see a decline in the number of people who are at work in manufacturing. The other aspect of it is that uh, if you are on strike, you're not eligible for unemployment benefits. Uh, 12,700 workers are actually on strike, but there's 146,000 United Auto Workers. If other plants are shut down because those few workers are out, then all those people could file for unemployment benefits. And we'll know it's a strike, so the Fed won't be too upset about it, but it'll certainly make it hard to get a clean read on the numbers from the jobless claims. On the other hand, the Writers Guild strike, it started May 2nd, has really balloon to other industries that are sitting idle in Hollywood. You have the sag after strike compounding that. You see that show up in the unemployment data. Yeah, the people who are uh, collateral victims of, of the strike uh, don't get counted as uh, jobs lost. Uh, but the strikers are only just in the last month or so beginning to get uh, counted in terms of the uh, number of jobs lost in the motion picture industry and things like that because uh, they get irregular paychecks. Most of them are freelancers. And so they don't get paid in the same way that other workers do, so it's harder for the Bureau of Labor Statistics to count them. Now, despite inflation still a problem, retail spending held up pretty well in August. You talked about fuel prices being a big part of that increase, but still, Americans are spending. Americans are spending. Uh, gasoline went up 5.2%, a big jump. And that, of course, uh, means people had less to spend on other things, but they spent anyway. It really was a sort of traditional back-to-school month of August as clothing store sales went up by nine-tenths. We also saw a rise in personal care as people went out and got their back-to-school haircuts and things like that. Uh, And we saw electronics uh, rise, people buying computers for their kids to go back to school uh, and, and calculators and things like that. So uh, it, it was kind of the spending that you would expect for an August, which is good news for the Fed. Now, housing, long-term mortgage rates still above 7% at a two-decade high. Adjustable rates just hit a 12-year high. Still a problem in housing. It is a problem in housing, uh, particularly for existing home sales, because so many people, uh, something like 40 percent of mortgage holders now have mortgages under 4 percent, and they don't want to 
get a new mortgage that's at 7 or 8%, so they're not putting their homes on the market. And it's sort of frozen the housing market, which then leads to fewer sales of new carpets and appliances and things like that. So that's a problem. The new home sales market has been booming because it's the only place you can get a house these days. And a lot of the builders have uh, come up with their own financing and they're buying down your mortgage rate. So you don't have to pay 8%. You might pay, uh, you know, 5 uh, we don't know if that's going to be enough to keep it going, but for right now, that's the only bright spot in housing. And according to Redfin, the average mortgage cost 2632 bucks a month. That's the highest ever. Not even prices on those houses, but mortgage rates and insurance making that change. Car insurance, we know, went up 19% in August year over year. Well, uh, particularly with cars insurance, uh, cars have gotten much more complex and more expensive to fix. Uh, we also saw a big rise, obviously, in used car prices and more used cars break down uh, because people were buying used cars because there weren't new cars to buy. So uh, for the insurance companies, their costs have gone up a lot and they've been raising rates to, uh, to make up for that. Now, staying on autos, how do you think a protracted job action might impact the economy? Well, in the past, we have not seen huge macroeconomic effects. You see them for a very short period of time. 1998 was a very similar year to what we're seeing right now. There was a strike against General Motors, but it was called against only two plants and only 9,200 workers went out. But that shut down GM around the country. So there were about 200,000 people who were off work. And you can see in the uh, auto manufacturing statistics, there is a big drop in the third quarter of 1998. And uh, in the number of workers, there was a big drop in the third quarter of 1998. But plot GDP over that and you don't see it because as soon as the strike's over, the company gets back to producing cars as fast as it can. And Americans are still going to be buying cars. And the people who were striking get raises and and go out and maybe spend a little bit more. So you end up with it not having a major macro effect. Where you do see it is in equities uh, because it not only affects the automakers, but the parts makers and their stocks drop, and it spreads beyond that. Um, raw materials makers, steel and rubber. And then uh, in 1998, uh, the New York Times saw a decline in revenue because auto be automobile advertising was pulled during the strike. So if you're looking for an effect, that's probably where you're going to see it more than uh, in the macro economy. Well, Michael, thank you. Bloomberg International Economics and Policy Correspondent Michael McKee. Coming up here on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, leaders from around the world gather in New York for the United Nations General Assembly meeting. We'll tell you what to expect next week. I'm Tom Busby, and this is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm Tom Busby in New York. 
The United Nations General Assembly holds its 78th annual session the week of September 18th. Leaders from around the world descending upon New York for what's expected to be the most interesting UNGA since before the pandemic. With the focus on Russia's invasion of Ukraine, shadow diplomacy with Iran, and the increasingly tense geostrategic divide between the U.S. and China. General debate begins on Tuesday. For more, let's head to our Bloomberg 991 newsroom in Washington and Bloomberg Sound On co-host Kaylee Lines. Yeah, Tom, while everyone in New York is bracing for heavier traffic associated with the annual UN General Assembly meeting, fondly known as UNGA, Washington is watching to see what real policy developments could come out of this gathering. And Bloomberg TV's very own chief Washington correspondent, Anne-Marie Hordern, will be making the trip up there herself this coming week. She joins me now with more of a preview. So, Anne-Marie, Let's just talk about what the objective here really is for President Biden, for example. He's going to make the trip. What exactly does he want to achieve? I think what you'll see this year, Kaylee, is similar to what we saw from President Biden last year. Some of these major themes he wants to address in front of the international community. One, of course, is going to be Russia's invasion of Ukraine. He talked about this last year. He said it's a war where Russia wants to extinguish Ukraine's right to exist, you're going to see him want to really continue to ramp up the support in favor of Ukraine against Russia at the international uh, community, especially when Russia will be in the room, not by President Putin, but Farmister Sergei Lavrov will be there. Of course, China will be the other elephant in the room. Xi Jinping is also not going to be in attendance. Both those leaders, Putin and Xi, didn't also go to the G20. Um, But this is a chance for Biden to show that the U.S is in that presence, even those other leaders are not going to be there. And once again, I think you'll hear from the American president and from any American official that's asked about China, they continuously say it's not that we want to have a conflict with China. We want to be able to have competition and put guardrails around that competition. Uh, uh, it's becoming a little bit of a joke, but everyone in D.C. says what they constantly say. They're not decoupling, they're right. de-risking. Right. Um, if you're able to figure out the difference between those two, let me know. Uh, and then I think the <laughs> final uh, big point that the president may talk about is going to be Iran. Because I have some reporting that the Iran hostage swap will happen as soon as Monday. And that's just before these leaders come together. And you have Ibrahim Raisi speaking to NBC News before the UN General Assembly saying that this unfrozen fund of $6 billion that was re- that's going to be released in exchange for the prisoners, it is Iranian money, but it was frozen in South Korea. He's saying that they can use it on whatever they need in Iran. The administration continues to say that is not true. It's for humanitarian purposes only. And imagine, given the fact that it's happening likely on Monday, the president's going to have to address this. Okay, so Iran will be on the agenda for him, perhaps an unavoidable subject. But to go back to the idea of this also really being about China and Russia. How complicated is that considering they are also permanent members of the UN Security Council? Like, does that hinder what can actually be achieved at a summit like this? Well, I think it hinders what the UN has been able to achieve at all Mm. regarding Russia's invasion of Ukraine. They're members of Security Council. The UN hasn't been able to act um, uh, on this war. So while the UN General Assembly offers a place for dialogue, there hasn't been a lot of action when it comes to that, um, which is why many people say the UN, many call it obsolete and useless. <laughs> uh, but it will be a place for dialogue. But at the moment, nothing can really 
happen because you do have Xi Jinping and Russia's hold on the Security Council. So you say it's a place for dialogue, and obviously that is, you know, wider dialogue among the entire General Assembly, but also we often see it at meetings like this, sideline meetings between different leaders. And our understanding is President Biden may be having a few of those as well, including with reportedly Prime Minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, who has had a pretty tense relationship with the president of the U.S. at this point, I, I would argue, Anne-Marie. What, what do we expect out of that meeting? Why have that one? So right now, you have not had Netanyahu yes, yet have this invite to the White House. He and Joe Biden go years back. They know each other. They've been in this circle for a while. But the issue is, of course, the White House has taken aim on a number of policies the Netanyahu government has wanted to push forward, um, especially coming from the right wing of his government, most notably the judicial overhaul plan. So this is going to be the first time they're seeing each other in person since he took office again in December. All eyes are going to be on this meeting, not only because these two individuals will be meeting and there's been some of some of that tension you just mentioned, but also the fact that This administration is working at the same time to try to bring normalization between Saudi Arabia and Israel. They were just at the G20. They did this infrastructure deal, which Saudi Arabia is a part of. Israel is also tangentially a part of. And everyone is trying to see if this can actually happen. So this will be an interesting pull-aside meeting. But it's also interesting that it's not a White House meeting. It's happening at UNGA. Also, apparently Netanyahu will also be meeting Elon Musk next week. He's doing a little bit of a U.S. tour. That might be just as interesting as the POTUS meeting. To go back to what you were talking about earlier with the idea of of some kind of normalization happening. You, of course, spoke this past week with Amos Hochstein of the White House, and you touched on this a little bit. How close realistically are we? I think he threw some cold water on that, meaning the U.S. has been very honest that they would want to see that extension, really, of the Abraham Accords that were done under the Trump administration, where you saw a number of Gulf countries, notably the UAE, have these normalized ties with Israel, travel started, embassies opened. Lots of commercial ties uh, came to fruition after that, but they're just not there yet. There's a number of steps that have to happen, Um, but it's still on the table, and it's something that could happen. I just think, you know, potentially we're a little over our skis if we think that might happen at this UN General Assembly or before the year is up. I think that a lot of work needs to still be deciphered through, and then they really need to make sure they're selling it to their constituents. So when we're talking about selling things, and this goes back to to the Ukraine issue, which you said is going to be high on the agenda for Biden, I just wonder how much harder that job is in a body like this one full of those who come from different countries and are looking in on the U.S. and the conversation happening here in Washington on Capitol Hill around continued funding for Ukraine and what that does to the president's position as he's trying to make the case that other countries should be still engaging, still funding, still trying to support the war when it's clear that not everyone here in Washington is with him on that. It's going to be challenging for the president because he's going to want to come to the podium and he's going to want to be so forthright about America's stance in supporting Ukraine. At the same time, he will be in New York City at the U.N., giving this speech, there's going to be debates behind Congress, closed doors, whether or not they're going to sign off on his request and that supplemental funding request for aid for Ukraine. It does look like the Senate wants to go forward with that. 
But in the House, it's really anyone's guess on how it gets done. Does McCarthy have to remove it from the supplemental, put it with maybe border concerns to make sure the hard right flank of his party joins in and votes for it because they see something enticing in border money and potentially some controversial, what the Democrats would call controversial asylum provisions? Mm. So – Ukraine is this issue where not just in Congress, but on the debate stage, Republican candidates, you see people taking different points of views. And President Zelensky is going to be really honest when he's also in New York next week. Um, And he wants to make this case for a peace formula plan. And then Reuters is also reporting that he's going to come to Washington to have another meeting with the president. And the timing, of course, is interesting. Zelensky obviously sees and is privy to the debate that's ongoing in America on how long and how much Americans are willing to fund and support Ukraine. Looking forward to all of your coverage of UNGA, Bloomberg's Anne-Marie Hordern, our very own chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television. And Tom, we'll send it back to you. Thank you, Kaylee. That was Bloomberg Sound On co-host Kaylee Lines reporting from our Bloomberg 99.1 newsroom in Washington. And you can hear Sound On weekdays, 1 to 3 p.m. on Bloomberg Radio. Coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, interest rates also in focus overseas. We take you to London to preview the Bank of England's policy decision this week. I'm Tom Busby, and this is Bloomberg. Broadcasting live from the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Bloomberg 1130. To Washington, D.C. Bloomberg 991. To Boston. Bloomberg 1061. To San Francisco. Bloomberg 960. To the country. Sirius XM Channel 119. To London. DAB Digital Radio. And around the globe. The Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm Tom Busby in New York. Bloomberg Economics expects the Bank of England to continue raising interest rates to 5.5% next week, despite signs of the impact on the economy. Now, for more, let's head to London and bring in Bloomberg Daybreak Europe anchor, Caroline Hepker. Tom, as the UK's economic outlook gets cloudier, the debate about whether the Bank of England will continue raising interest rates and for how long is intensifying. UK inflation remains the worst in the group of seven nations, but July saw a bigger than expected drop in UK economic growth. Remember, although the UK was the first amongst major central banks to start raising interest rates, inflation in Britain is stuck at 6.8%, according to the August figure. That is almost double the level that you're seeing over in the US, and it's still well above the euro area rate of 5.3%. Now, for more on all of this, Tom McKenzie and I have been speaking to Bloomberg senior UK economist Dan Hansen about the Bank of England's upcoming decision. I started by asking Dan how badly the UK is losing steam after monthly GDP fell by half of 1%, in July. We're certainly worried that the economy is losing steam a little bit faster than we'd anticipated it would. Um, obviously, you would expect this to happen to some extent given the scale of the interest rate rises that we've had, but I think it might be happening a little bit faster. Um, and yeah, so we're looking we're not we're not looking for um we're still looking for the economy to expand very modestly in in the third quarter, but I think moving into the fourth quarter, we're still expecting a contraction. I think the other thing to remember is that the forward-looking data isn't looking that 
great either. So we had that August PMI, remember, that dropped into recessionary territory. So we are, we think we're sort of on the edge, if you like. We're sort of we're uh, we're sort of balancing between sort of stagnation, which is what we've had over the past year, and potentially moving into contraction. And as you said at the at the start, there, that's making it very difficult for the Bank of England as it navigates what to do next. So, so potentially getting getting and looking at a, a contraction, a recession here in the UK. The, the debate, of course, in the US is all about a soft landing. That's never really been part of the narrative here here in the UK. What what kind of re- what would that recession look like, Dan? How how prolonged? How deep? How painful? Yes, I mean, I think when we look at all of this through just through the eye of a, of, a, of an economic model, the the amount of tightening that's come from the Bank of England. So we've had over five hundred basis points of tightening. If you put that through an economic model you get a very, very big hit to GDP, something in the region of 5% of GDP hit. It's enormous. Now, we obviously just haven't had anything like that. We've had, the economy's been stagnating. So it's been doing a lot better than models would tell you. Nonetheless, there are these lags in the system and we know that there is more to come and the Bank of England's obviously been been quite open about this and it re- partly reflects the way the mortgage market works in the UK. Um, and I think we we think there's going to be a as I say a recession, a peak trough fall in GDP of about one percent. Now, as I say, I've sort of spoken about sort of model side of it there. In terms of historical context, that's also extremely small. So if you think about the financial crisis, it was over six percent the fall in GDP. In the nineties, it was about three percent, and in the eighties, it was about four and a half percent. So it's still very very modest. Nonetheless, we still think. And, you know, the data, the recent data has given us a little bit more confidence in this view that the economy is heading for a period of of falls in output. How significant was the revision to the official data, the ONS data post-pandemic? Um, I was speaking to the Exchequer Secretary to the Treasury, Gareth Davies, um, significant voice, obviously, for the, for the government. He was sounding pretty pleased about it. Um, does that lead, though, to a, any sort of rethink on future or longer term UK economic growth? So the way the way we we read it, and I'm not surprised the government has sort of been been very happy about it, because of course the, the thing the first thing to say about the revisions, I, I should say, is that this is all the way up to the end of 2021. So we've had nothing about 2022 and 2023. So we've had nothing really about the impact of high inflation and high interest rates, and whether the economy may have been more resilient in the face of that. So we just don't know. Um, the story still looks pretty pretty poor on the data that we've got. Um, the, the, what I took away from it, um, looking at it, was that actually the economy was less scarred from the pandemic. So the the hit to the economy from the pandemic, the sort of permanent hit to output, was less severe. And that's obviously a really, really good news story. And actually, um, going back to the government, it was a reflection of the, the policies that were put in place, in particular the furlough scheme. So I think it tells us something about the past. We'll be watching it's at the end of september we'll get more information about the more recent data points so we'll definitely be be watching that to see if the economy actually has been carrying more momentum and and we have been too downbeat about the uk what is your sense dan of the inflation trajectory for the uk are we seeing a meaningful move lower in terms of prices are we on a sustained trajectory to lower prices that have been flagged by by the bank of england yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Tom, I think it's it's been all about energy here. And we, we know that it takes a little bit longer for the for the energy effect to come through because of the way household energy bills work and they enter the CPI basket. I mean, I still think we're going to get to about 5% by the end of the year. Mm. Um, 
do you think that uh, we should be concerned around uh, the housing market? I mean, that's another sort of element of this economic uh, picture. Um, it does look as if the housing data as a result of higher interest rates is worsening quite, quite rapid, rapidly now. Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think we should. I mean, I think that's and it's the bit, you know, it's, the, it's one of the most interest interest rate sensitive bits of the economy. And it's exactly where you would expect these rate hikes to show up first. And we've been seeing that we've had, you know, we think there'll be a fall, a cumulative fall of about 10% in house prices. We've had about a little bit under half of that, if you look at the nationwide figures. Um, so we think there's further to go. But yeah, it's, it absolutely is a concern. Um, and of course, it, here in the UK, at least, there is a there is a real link between housing confidence and spending, and it that's where it will start to bite. Is that if if consumers start to feel worried about the fact that the value of their house is falling, even though it doesn't really affect their wealth, they just feel less well off. Then yes, you know, there's going to potentially be a, a bigger hit to through sentiment to to spending. So yeah, it's something we're definitely watching. And you're right. I mean, we we had the RIC survey. It looks like things are. Are beginning to sort of snowball a little bit in the housing market so it's something to definitely keep an eye on and dan i wonder how closely the bank of england are going to be focused on on the housing sector as well we know that traders have started to kind of pair their bets around the terminal rate from the bank of england but arguably we've had a few mixed messages from officials there whether it's andrew bailey talking about table mountain along with hugh pill or Catherine Mann, who's on the hawkish spectrum of the MPC. Do you have clarity? Do you have a clearer steer on on how the Bank of England is thinking about everything that you've talked about and weaving that all together to have a a clearer projection? Yeah, so I think think you're right that particularly Bailey and Pill, that feels like a bit of a shift. And I think the thing to remember with them as well is that they're in... They're part of the internal group with Ben Broadbent that tend to or have voted together during this mm. hiking cycle. And I think the fact that they're shifting away from potentially the pace of rate hikes and the fact that we need rate hikes to focusing more on the level of rates and the level of the the, the extent to which rates are restrictive is something that certainly traders and certainly we have taken notice of. Um, I mean, going into the September meeting, I think the story around wage growth is going to dominate. And I think there's definitely something, there's definitely good reason to think they will lift rates um, in September. And I think the market sort of is pretty much there with that. I think it's pricing about an 80% chance um, of a hike. That was Bloomberg's Chief UK Economist, Dan Hansen, speaking to Tom McKenzie and I ahead of the Bank of England's interest rate decision. And we'll be covering that rate decision at 12 noon London time on Thursday the 21st. And the day before, we'll break the latest UK inflation data that That's live on Bloomberg Radio on Wednesday the 20th. Expect it at 7am London time. I'm Caroline Hepke here in London and you can catch us every weekday morning for Bloomberg Daybreak Europe beginning at 6am in London. That's 1am on Wall Street. Tom. Thank you, Caroline. And coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, we stay on interest rate watch as we go to Asia to preview the Bank of Japan's policy decision. I'm Tom Busby and this is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. 
Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm Tom Busby in New York. Bank of Japan watchers moving forward their forecast for an end to negative interest rates. That's after Governor Kazuo Ueda touched on that possibility in a recent interview. So what's next for the BOJ ahead of their next policy meeting? For more, let's head to Bloomberg Daybreak Asia host, Doug Krisner. Tom, the Bank of Japan has a rate decision in the week ahead, and markets have been speculating on the BOJ possibly taking steps to adjust policy. The question is whether that bet is a bit premature. Let's bring in Paul Jackson, Bloomberg economy editor, who joins us from our studios in Tokyo. Paul, BOJ policy we know has been ultra easy for decades now, largely because of the story on deflation. But for the last 17 months, it's a different story. Inflation in Japan has been above the BOJ's target. So is there a bit of urgency now to begin normalizing? Uh, well, I think we're certainly stepping closer to that day. Uh, we have a meeting coming up, but there's going to be no major change at this uh, coming meeting. But after recent remarks from Governor Ueda to local media, uh, definitely the uh, scrapping of negative interest rates is now on the radar with economists expecting that to happen in the first half next year. So that would be the policy rate now. And we talk about yield curve control quite a bit. So if YCC were to be adjusted, what might the preparation for normalcy look like on that front? Uh, well, it's a complicated uh, framework, isn't it? We've got two targets here, one for the short-term rate, which is currently minus 0.1%. And then we've got this target for 10-year uh, yields, which is uh, nominally zero, but uh, yields are going to be allowed to rise uh, up to 1%. So I think before we can have uh, a scrapping of the negative interest rate, that target on the 10-year yield uh, needs to be uh, abandoned or raised. Now, the question is, would he do it all in one go? I think that is a possibility, though some economists argue that they'd have to address this 10-year uh, yield uh, target first and then move to the negative rate next year. So the BOJ tweaked yield curve control back in July, and it was then that Governor Ueda said the move was aimed in part by limiting a lot of the volatility that we had seen in the Japanese yen. How does the currency enter the thinking here when it comes to tweaking policy? Uh, well, I think, you know, if you look at uh, uh, the weakness in the yen recently, it's getting to a point where, uh, you know, businesses are, are, you know, having difficulty planning for the future. Uh, consumers are being hit by higher uh, import prices, which is driving uh, inflation. So we're kind of at the limit of uh, what is acceptable on uh, the, the yen level. As we know, uh, September last year, after the Fed met and the BOJ met, Japan intervened to prop up the currency for the first time since 1998. Uh, I think that's less likely this time because we haven't had quite the sudden moves. People are more used to these uh, yen levels this time around. And also, I think Bank of Japan Governor Ueda is a little bit more willing to talk about FX and give the impression that the BOJ may give the government a helping hand on helping support the currency. So when intervention is conducted, it's done under the auspices of the Ministry of Finance. That's different than the Bank of Japan. I understand that. But I'm wondering whether or not... Governor Ueda has a level, let's say, in yen vis-a-vis -vis the dollar that is uh, he's keeping a close eye on. 
<laughs> well, all these monetary authorities are very reluctant to talk about levels. They say it's sudden moves. But I would say that the last intervention in October last year came around the 152 mark. So I think it'd be very difficult for Japan to move before we've got there. Paul, thank you so much for helping us set up uh, the BOJ meeting in the week ahead. Paul Jackson, Bloomberg Economy Editor, joining from Tokyo. I'm Doug Krisner. You can join Brian Curtis and myself weekdays here for Bloomberg Daybreak Asia, beginning at 6 a.m. in Hong Kong, 6 p.m. on Wall Street. Tom? Thank you, Doug. And that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. Join us again Monday morning at 5 a.m. Wall Street time for the latest on markets overseas and the news you need to start your day. I'm Tom Busby. Stay with us. Top stories and global business headlines are coming up right now. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.